If you are not careful and you let yourself be captured by the news and all the noise, it can confuse you into believing that there is more wrong in our society than right with it. That there are more selfish people than selfless people. Every day there are more people that you know, that you meet, that you pass by, who focus their efforts and energy into helping others, in service to others, to making their country, their community better. They are the teachers, the doctors, the nurses, the veterans, the police officers, and so many others. This is the Strength From Service Podcast. Welcome to another edition of Strength From Service. Uh, I am Jake Palmer, the quiet guy in the corner, which is unusual. With me, as always, Jack Zimmerman, Mike McLaughlin. Who's going to introduce our special guest today? Yeah, I will be. All right, we'll go for it. Cool. Yeah, our guest today is John Creasel. Uh, I met John uh, right after I was wounded. I was laying in a hospital bed, and uh, they were putting together my Purple Heart ceremony. And uh, they're like, who do you want to pin your Purple Heart? And at the time, uh, Tim Plenty was the governor. And I was like, uh, I want Plenty to pin my Purple Heart. You know, if you'll come down here, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, I believe he was running for president at the time and had a bunch of stuff going on. And it didn't work out or whatever. But they're like, hey, there's this legislator. Uh, he lost his legs in Iraq. Uh, would you be interested in him coming down and painting your purple heart? And I was like, that sounds better than plenty. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was like, absolutely. And so uh, Walt Fricky and the Veterans Airlift Command flew you guys down. And uh, I remember. Farms. Too. Yeah, Christensen Farms, yeah. And uh, I remember uh, sitting there and you guys coming in and uh, meeting you for the first time. It was pretty awesome. And uh, you gave me a copy of your book. Uh, still standing and and uh, we got to sit there with my whole family and and uh, you pin my purple heart on me that day and uh, today I'll never forget and we I remember uh, you're like here somebody wants to talk to you on the phone and plenty was on the phone uh, and uh, congratulated me or whatever you want to call it for getting a purple heart and uh, from then on uh, I've looked at you as a mentor to me and, and a guy that's been through it and somebody I could uh, lean on anytime I was going through something you know and uh, I've always appreciated you being there for that and uh, it's great, you know, with your family now, Kayla and, and little Chloe. She's the cutest little girl ever. And uh, and uh, everything you do now um, uh, is uh, pretty special, you know, helping veterans still to this day, even after. Um, I think uh, me and you share that of being helped by so many people. It feels good to give back. And, and uh, we'll touch on all that stuff. But uh, you have an incredible story of, of being wounded in Iraq, overcoming that adversity, and uh, still finding a way to laugh about everything and, and still be greasy as ever, right? Greasy as can be. <laughs> Grease, I like that. Greasy as ever. Well, welcome. Thanks for coming, man. Thanks for having me. Good to be in Fancato. Yeah, we uh, we're glad you can make the uh, make the trip for us. That's for sure. So let's start. Um, obviously, you know, a, a lot of folks know your story. A lot of folks don't. Uh, but let's start uh, first. What led you to to serve? I mean, what was what was, was there a reason that you signed up? Was it uh, post nine eleven? Did you just did you feel honor bound? What 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 drove you to that? When I was t around 10 years old, I saw the first Gulf War on TV, and it was you know the first televised war in my lifetime. It was round-the-clock coverage. And, I mean, who wouldn't want to be in the military after watching that display? I mean, it was a... Uh, Rush to Walmart oh and get my your desert camo. It was just... Oh, the yeah. chocolate, chip, uh, oh. chocolate chips and then the yellow ribbons in the communities. I mean, they, they came out with the nines, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. So that was that's what implanted it. I'd wanted to be a police officer before that, and then I decided at that moment, I was like, this is what I want to do. So I went to all the different branches, and I settled on the National Guard because 
I could join on my 17th birthday. I could go to basic training right after my junior year in high school and then go do AIT after my senior year. And then you can always, you can go active duty straight mm-hmm. from that. You can't go active duty and then go, yeah, I don't like this. <laughs> yeah. And then halfway the through it, go, yeah, let me, let me focus on Camp Ripley and, and, you know, shoot down to the, to the guard. So I joined on my 17th birthday, spent my birthday at MEPS with a couple buddies. Uh, was that in Minneapolis? Yeah. Yeah. The hotel they put us in. Uh, I think that was my first actual, uh, experience with combat. There were gunshots outside. It was some janky hotel. We hear that a lot of them. And this is before Minneapolis got real greasy. Uh, So this was like... Yeah, 1998. I got. I had to go to Sioux Falls. That's where. Uh, that was my hood. That would have been so, delightful. Beautiful. Yeah, but that's <laughs> beautiful. That, that's because you had a lower ASVAB score, Jack. They had to sneak you in. That's in absolutely Falls, true. Yeah. That's absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah. Yeah. And the doctor out there was blind, so yeah, uh, couldn't see your <laughs> tail. You didn't have your legs when you joined. <laughs> yeah, he said, right. He's good. He's fine. He's yeah. He'll work. <laughs> Me- mechanized infantry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> grab him for sure. Let's yeah. go. Now, did anybody else in your family serve? Was this a family thing, or was this just uh, your own inspiration? After watching the first Gulf War, I had some cousins, one of my half brothers, which I have a million half brothers. My dad was uh, allergic to protection. So, um, so yeah, it was called a mechanic. in the business. And he yeah. gave me a list of MOSs that I couldn't do. He crossed them out, crossed them out. And infantry is what I wanted. Right. And he told me, definitely not infantry. He said, they're jerks. He, I'm paraphrasing, of course. Yeah. And he says, all they care about is drinking and being with women. And I said, Sign me up. I think we're good. Yeah. Oh, my call. Yep. Say no more, yeah. man. Say no more. Not sure what else they do, but. Yeah. So my other friends that joined, I, they picked MOS is that they got a signing bonus. I got a T-shirt. Yeah. So. Still got it, right? Still got it. Sleeves off it now. Funny thing is, when I was going through divorce i was cleaning stuff out to to get rid of or whatever and i found that t-shirt in on the back and on the front obviously minnesota army national guard with the phone number to call in case you're walking around they go i want to join what do yeah. i call how do i get one of those shirts that drunk guy with the ladies on <laughs> yeah look at that guy having a great time uh and on the back get a number it says attitude is everything and i was like i'll be damned i was upset about that t-shirt and it ended up being True and kind of a big part of my mantra. Like, priceless. Yeah. Price. That signing bonus was priceless. Oh yeah. Glad I got no money. <laughs> what are you guys yeah. doing with that with that ten grand now? I still got the t shirt, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that's that's that a- Gildan yeah. non breathable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty similar story from a lot of the infantry guys we've heard from is like, you know, there wasn't really something you had to be sold on, you weren't pitched on it. And I know that's kinda like a common trope of the infantry, you know, combat arms guys like, oh, you're just too dumb to do anything else. And it's like, no, everyone just kind of came in with like, well, yeah, I'm going to do this and you don't have to sell me in anything. I'm just right. going that route. It seems to be a pretty And when you get thing. there, you're like, oh, you guys were all the same kid and just at a different school. That's yeah. it. 100%. <laughs> yeah. yeah at, you're speaking the same language. The drill sergeants are speaking the same. Like it is. Yeah. And when you say, let's do some, uh, let, let's find some trouble. Everybody's like, oh, yeah. I was already I was already on it. Yeah, <laughs> let's yep. go here. You know, it's just uh, <laughs> it's 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 just uh, it's just a really fun place surrounded by a bunch of people you've been looking for your whole life. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose too. So the Army Army National Guard. Then you you went down to Fort Benning. Then too. Yes. For basic, and then back to AIT. Yes. So I came back for my senior year. I was much better behaved in school then. <laughs> what were right, your, right. What'd your friends think of that? 
in school. Do you remember that? I mean, do they think it was pretty they awesome? Do they think it was crazy? Okay. Yeah. They, they, they were proud of it. Yeah. There was sure. a couple of them that wanted to do it and then were like, uh, <laughs> no thanks. So um, one of my buddies, he signed up, but then before, t- before it was time to go to basic training, he decided he wanted to play soccer. Uh, yeah, and that so makes I was sense. like, "Yeah, that that sounds good." So then he did not go to basic training with me. It was fine, you, hey. you know. Like you said, you meet your own new f- friends, or they become your family. Even basic training ones that you never end up serving with down the road, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there's a common thread there. You know, you infantry, serve. you end up playing with your balls a lot too. All so the time. soccer, <laughs> you can always serve. You can always play yeah. soccer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's uh, so. Uh, back then, when you went through, uh, and obviously you had your stages broken up. How, how long was basic back? I think it was ten weeks because it's the they got to get you into shape, and then uh, like a and then yeah, where it's. They treat it like it's AIT, where AIT was like basic training again. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're doing OSIT, because you did you did OSIT, right, Jack? Yep. Yeah, the one, so yeah, one station unit training. That's where you do basic training and your job training all at once. So since mine was split up, there are people that get a little carried away with snacks <laughs> over the school year. They're not doing the physical training, staying in shape. Um, I stayed in shape. But I still got punished like the rest of them when we went back for AIT. Funny how that works. Ugh. So, yeah, that was the uh, not, not fun. Only takes one. A lot, of, uh, a lot of buddies and guys I knew that were older than me in uh, the small town I grew up in did the exact same thing in Wisconsin. They did basic between junior and senior and then AIT afterwards. And I don't recall, did you still do the uh, you still do the one weekend a month and that thing through your senior year also? Back then, yes. Now okay. they have. Did they pay they, you? They have, yeah. When you were in high school, that'd be sweet. Yep. So it was... Um, now it's called, I forget what it's called. It's it, uh, uh, RSP? Yes, RSP, yeah. Recruit Sustainment Program. So you're doing staying in shape. You're doing PT. You're learning okay. what you'll, back then, it's I, would, I would yeah. drill with the regular unit. Mm-hmm. I suppose you've been through basic training. So. Right, but I couldn't, because I hadn't been through AIT, I couldn't do the qual on the range, Ranges, sure. which, which is fine, but I could be up for opposition force and and you know attacking them with blanks and everything never went well obviously you don't have <laughs> right. the right. full infantry <laughs> tactics you know the catalog of infantry ta- tactics at that point but no it was awesome and uh, back then you know times were much different that's where i learned how to drink right yeah. and i mean you're because you're up there and they're like you're old enough to die for your country so i'd come back to high school after basic training, you know, and after a drill weekend, and everyone's like, oh, Crease, you missed out on a real ripper. You know, <laughs> so-and-so had a bunch of people over. I'm like, yeah. you have no idea. Yeah. Right. We stacked the windows with, with uh, cans of empty beer, yeah. went to the camp store, <laughs> which was a, a gentleman's club. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was a quick... It was basic training, then basic training into adulthood. Yeah, was real weekend. Yeah. How awesome was Danny's basement last weekend? Tell me about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. No, I bet it was great. Did you guys have what one, two girls there? <laughs> right. Fantastic, fantastic. So you did all this. So you get out of high school, then you go back down to Benning for AIT, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what was life like after AIT? Then you just back to normal. You went and got a job, or what? Yep. How did that work out? So, so at that time, that was 2000. 2000. I graduated in 2000. So okay. I went down summer 2000, came back. It was before 9-11. So I ended up working at a couple jobs and ended up at an ink factory. Wow. That was an ink manufacturing facility in Minneapolis. Very hard, labor intensive, but a good job. Solid benefits, all that was crushing. And you get like 50, 50 cent raise every three months, like stuff that doesn't happen nowadays. Right. And uh and then 9-11 happened while I was at work. And uh, that's when I knew things had changed. 
me, and I probably wasn't half having to go to active duty. Active duty was going to come to me. Mm-hmm. Sure. And did uh, what was your feelings on that? Well, once that happened, I mean, I was pissed. I think right. I, I mean everyone was sure when that happened. Um, unlike the kids nowadays, I saw that and I was like, I need to do something about it. And correct whatever and people can say, well, the being angry about it and just wanting to get even is not the right thing. That's how I felt, especially at that age. I was like, let's go get some. Mm-hmm. You did this yeah. to us. Let's go do it to you. And uh, shortly after that, we got notified of a deployment. And it was weird how secretive they asked or they let us know. Like, OK, get to the armory or whatever. And this wasn't right right after 9-11 because then that we ended up doing some stuff around here, guarding a nuclear power plant, which sure. no one attacked. Right. But Un- we were there in case with uh, ammo that wasn't loaded into the rifle. And then... Uh, <laughs> a bunch uh, of guys got sent to the airport, too, to yeah, do security. Was, I was uh, so glad I didn't do that. Yeah. that was just... Then you're in front of everyone and all... Oh, the, right. Whereas at least it's a power plant. You're doing your thing, but there's not a ton of eyes on you nitpicking. If somebody um, was around there, they'd probably shoot off anyways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then uh, we got notified that we were going to Kosovo. And when I heard we're getting deployed, I'm like, the way they're acting, this is this is not, we're going to Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. There's no way we're not. That is the top story in the news every day. That is the forefront of what's going on. And then we ended up, it was Bosnia, and then they pulled us and switched us to Kosovo. So I did that, and then my contract was up, so I was getting out. I was going to be a paramedic firefighter for St. Paul sure. Fire Department. So serve in a different capacity. So I was going through EMT training, all that. Three days before my contract expired, one of my buddies he got promoted, moved up to brigade headquarters. He called me. Sergeant First Class at that time, Renee Montero, and then he got promoted to Master Sergeant. He's like, you're not really getting out, are you? I was like, yep, I am. It's time. Mm-hmm. He said, well, there's a deployment to Iraq coming up next year. Talk to your family. Let me know. And so I was like, I'm in especially my buddies. I wasn't going to sit back at Fort living room and we couldn't, right. we hadn't been home long enough to be forced to go. So you had to sign a code T Ted waiver. So I had to reenlist and then sign this code T Ted waiver volunteering to go. Cause I think it's like a year that they can't, when you get back from a deployment, they can't force you on another one, which makes sense. So a bunch of us were like, I'll go if you go. And a bunch of us went, even my buddy, Joe M., <laughs> Uh, his wife gave him an ultimatum, said, if you volunteer for this, I'm divorcing you. And that man sprinted so fast that armor. <laughs> yeah, he was. I've never seen anybody more excited uh, for Iraq. That was it. We're going. That was it. Yeah. Harsh. Yeah. Two birds, one stone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. See you later. Yeah. On that on that coastal deployment, a lot of people forget because the Minnesota Guard actually has a, quite a few deployments to Kosovo, uh, the 0304, your guys, and then a gr- another group went back. Right on the heels of you guys going uh, coming back from Iraq in 07, 08, I think. And, and that's it, when it switched to a year, I yeah, think. Yeah, yep. we were six months in. And and people forget prior to 9-11 for, like, the active Army units, the Marine Corps units, that Kosovo, I mean, the peacekeeping, that was the show. That yeah. was where you deployed. That's where, like, special ops guys, it was either you're going to Africa or you were going to Kosovo, mm-hmm. and they were, you know, doing those support missions, and then the regular line units, too. So that that initial wave for a lot of the, the Guardians, especially Minnesota, Going to Kosovo in 03 was essentially due to a lot of the combat oh, operations yeah. going on elsewhere to help fulfill the rest of the missions that are going on right. all over the place, too. So, um, but yeah, no, that's, I mean, crazy. Oh, we thought it was, we thought we were in the in the mix at right. that point, too. There were riots and stuff. We had to tear gas people and yeah. we're like, oh, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, 
Iraq was was a different ball game for yeah, sure. Correct. So when when did you guys when did you actually start uh, getting put on orders for Iraq then for mobbing up? So we got the mob. I mean, everyone on the planet knew that the first brigade was going. It was the worst kept secret ever. Um, so they were shifting around, reorganizing the whole Minnesota National Guard into a brigade combat team. Uh, we were like, "What the hell are they doing?" In hindsight, a great model. Each mm-hmm. battalion's its own sustainable fighting force, um, self-sustained fighting force. So it was like spring that they started making the phone calls, notifying you, okay, this is your official notification, you're going, whatever. I went to PLDC, so I'd be eligible to be promoted to, to sergeant. Uh, I did that at Fort, oh, sorry, uh, out at, uh, call it out west, Fort Lewis. Oh, sure. sure. And then came back, which that was like basic training. I was like, calm down. <laughs> what the hell are we doing here? Sure. Uh, and that made the commandant's list, though. Got back here, and then we started October 1 of 2005 is when we went to Camp Shelby. Mississippi? Yep, yeah. yep. It had just been Hurricane Katrina had hit... <laughs> Like a oh, month wow. before. Oh, so when Hurricane Katrina was winding down, because I was like, I don't want to go to Mississippi. Yeah. I wanted to go to Fort Stewart where we trained up for uh, Kosovo. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Near the beach when yeah. we got time off. Get to Savannah. Oh, Savannah is the greatest. Yes. Um, you can get Hattiesburg to- is not. No. <laughs> Hattiesburg is not. And so we, uh, yeah, we got through it. And uh, Savannah, you can get walking around pops. So you can go yeah, and get a drink River and walk Street. on the street. Yeah, man, yeah. it's awesome. And that, so I was in the, the Marine Corps during that time, and we had just come back from southern Baghdad, Babel, the Fob Falcon area in Iraq. <clears throat> and we came back, and we were, you know, initial rumors was we were going to Anbar, then end of 05 and the beginning of 06. Because that's and, when the Army was handing it over to the yep, Marines around yep, that time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, uh, when uh, Hurricane Katrina happened, like we got put on alert to like for an infantry battalion. We're like, well, you know, it's uh, martial law, and we're going to send down there. And like, <laughs> you had never seen a bigger pissed off group of like yeah. eighteen through twenty six year olds. Like, we're going to have to go down and do martial law on civilians, and like, don't send us a disaster relief. We didn't join to do this. Well, sending a bunch yeah. of angry grunts, <laughs> yes, it right. yeah. would not have been a bright idea. No, not Worst a good idea stra- strategy at all. And, but just everyone's like, well, fuck, I want to get back to Iraq and Afghanistan, like bitching about staying in the states and everything in the same mentality of, you know, going down to Mississippi. It's oh. like, you know, I, I imagine you guys, one, not wanting to go to Mississippi and prefer in Savannah, but then it's also on the side. It's like, are we going to get screwed with and pulled over and do like some sort of like sandbagging operations oh. or any of that kind of stuff while we're trying to get get to the show essentially at the time. Right. And at that point, the, the deploy or the uh, train ups at that time, now they've gotten smarter and mm-hmm. now it's down to like three months. That was five months down there. Sure. We're at some point. You get overtrained, you get bored, and it's like, just send us over. Let's get yeah. this thing over with. It's yeah. a deployment before a deployment. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's exhausting. Yeah. And it does no good. There's the and first part. And we had to do our, because I think we didn't have to do AT that year because we were deploying. So well, we had nice to do a we- bunch of check the box stuff in like September. So we had to do all that stuff and then do our train up and then do Fort Polk. And so by the time we went to Kuwait, we're like, just send us in. We'll we'll win this war today. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get this thing over with. The other thing a lot of people don't think of that time frame, that mentality is like, you know, 
the, all that training and sit around and waiting, and especially like coming off our, our first and getting ready to go back. It's like we need to hurry up and get back there before the wars are over because yeah. this stuff is going to end. Like, right. And this is, you know, 2005, 2005. You know, obviously, we were really wrong on the projection. But like, I mean, like you didn't you didn't know. It's like, well, Correct. I mean, this has got to be winding down. It's already been going on for three years. It's going to be done, let alone that it was going to be another, you know, 17 years, essentially. on our, Yeah. Know, when I joined in 09, I was like, I better hurry up. <laughs> Oh, yeah, times are running out. Yeah. Well, guess what? You found you some combat. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it seems like that, that train-up must have changed because I remember my uh, my younger brother, when he went for his second tour, and they were learning uh, they were learning room-clearing tactics with uh, containers at the airport. Like, they got off the plane, and like, we're going to teach you guys how to clear some rooms. <laughs> and, yeah. and, all right, now you know, get in there. And he said it right. was like, compared to the first tour where it was months and months and months of train-up and yep. practice, and now they're like, you guys have done this three times, we're good. Let's well, go. And that's the one difference, too, with the uh, global war on terrorism is the the federal government's utilization of the National Guard in different role than historically it happened, you know, when we're not at World War. I mean, the 34th Infantry Division has a pretty, you know, historic history, you know, throughout the major wars. Uh, there were some activations during Vietnam and the, the Gulf War for Guard and Reserves, but not near the deployment cycle that happened during the War on Terror. And a lot of people would ask, like, you know, why are the Guard and the Reserve going? It's like, well, it's because we don't have a draft anymore. Right. And, and America needs to fulfill its mission. And these are combat effective and, and ready elements that are, are getting deployed. And they, I mean, that's yeah, money spent being keeping them trained up. We might as well. Yeah. Utilize it. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And because there was guys that I talked to in the area that, you know, were, you know, probably a lot of John's like senior enlisted too that had been in for 20 years. And their their only activation were, you know, down to the union strikes in Austin right. and Albert Lee, Minnesota or for disaster relief. And so that's one of the most admirable qualities of, you know, the brigade deploying and leaving Minnesota, just like John had to reenlist and sign that waiver is you saw a lot of guys with. 20 plus years that were in retirement zone that stayed on there or that were at reenlistment that were our age now in their late thirties, early forties that, you know, with families, with kids in elementary and high school that chose that, no, I'm staying with my unit. Yeah. I'm going. And then there were other ones that turned in their papers to run for Congress and got out of the military to Mm -hmm. the deployment. And, uh, yeah, you got all kinds of, and that's where the guard had got ripped on quite a bit at times, you know, nasty girls, they'd be called for, um, and you see there, and when we left Iraq, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on Iraq, but the uh, the Fulbert colonel that our unit, because our unit got attached to Marines, so our company commander answered to a Marine Fulbert colonel, uh, Colonel George Bristol, he has been to a, a lot of bad places. Mm-hmm. When we left, he said this was the finest unit he had ever served with. And wow. these are people from Minnesota, Um, A couple from North and South Dakota. These are people that came back and finished law school. These are people that were police, firefighters, all of that, but also highly effective, highly lethal in combat and truly turned the tide of that part of Ambar province. It's incredible, really. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of great books and uh, stories out there about Bristol and and Bristol's bastards and so on and so forth. Fictitious mostly, though. He uh he, he took some liberties there. That's that right. maybe oh, um, got to sell copies. Yeah. But when you use real people's names, you shouldn't have it as partially untrue. Oh, but it's entertaining. And the good parts of that book are amazing. Um, that guy. And he said he will be the first because their deployment ended before ours. And the you, everyone got extended as part of the surge. Mm-hmm. Um, I was already chilling back at Walter Reed at that point. <laughs> but uh, 
They Kick their back. deployment ended before ours, and they said we will be the first ones to welcome you off the plane when you're back in the United States to our unit. Wow. Colonel Bristol and Sergeant Major O'Connell were in at Volk Field in Wisconsin to welcome our unit home. Kick ass. Yeah. yeah. That's that, pretty great. Wow. That, it's family. And we might as well just roll into it because you go into Kuwait and you guys go up to Am- Ambar. And I know the brigade got split all over, mm-hmm. but you were in the, the Fab Fallujah area. And that's actually, so Regimental Combat Team 5 fifth, for 5th Marines, that's Bristol. And that's who we fell under then of my second deployment because okay. we left in August of 06. We left theater. So uh, we were still, we were probably at the same chow yeah, hall. Yeah, yeah, 100% at that Fallujah. But we would have been on the north side. Uh, like so out, the north chow hall. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we yeah. were by the, the south one. Yep. By yep, the gym. Yep. Uh, the one that got rocketed more is in the south. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, one of the north, they just had old ammo dumps all around where we lived. So if rockets did hit, there was something else to accelerate when the rocket impacted. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was like, ah, it's the infantry marines up there. But uh, no, no. Uh, they actually enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> and and it wasn't until I kind of got in the gig that we're in now uh, when I talked to some of our counterparts that deployed that I realized, you know, the brigade besides, and we'll get into your specifics here, was, you know, all the way over is east, you know, pretty much in western Baghdad in um, Abu Ghraib area because mm-hmm. I talked to some of the, the soldiers uh, from the, the brigade here back in Minnesota a decade later and we got pulled over to uh, Abu Ghraib uh, to backfill when the Golden Mosque got blown up in Mosul and there was infighting up there and they pulled 10th Mountain out so they reinforced it with Marines and I was the first <laughs> first guys I ever saw with those terrible uh, camis Oh, uh, yeah. or Minnesota National Guard oh. guys. I remember coming in. They off, make you stand out. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's the opposite. I, I, and I didn't know what the the hell the bull was. You know, because the Marines we don't do patches. But I remember coming in. We were coming in uh, for mid rats because we came off a couple day patrol outside uh, Abu Ghraib and came in to mid rats. And there was a soldier standing in line with those gray camis and like a bull on it. And I was like, "Hey, bro, like what's that?" And he like just looks down in his uniform and he goes. <sighs> I know, man. They're terrible. <laughs> we thought they were so awesome when they first gave them to us. This kid just did, did oh, God. Just beaten down. But maybe Be- when he got in country, he decided that maybe they're not so awesome anymore. Well, especially that. our area was very green. Yeah. Before mm-hmm. I went there, I pictured it to be just a big desert. You know, all the things you picture that end up being completely wrong. Oh. It looked like southern Minnesota, but with palm trees. Because yeah. that's that is where irrigation Correct. was invented many, 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 many yep. years ago. So they could grow they could grow crops. They had farms forever. And then palm trees sprinkled in. Yeah. Oh. I sent so my, it I, was, yeah. I sent the, the old disposable cameras home to my old man that he would send to me overseas. And you met my dad, too. That, uh, and he would when he would write me letters, they do the email and they print it off and send it out to your outpost. Moto mail. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, and he would be like, it looks like Vietnam where you're at. Because yeah. like there would I'd take pictures of us patrolling through the flooded palm groves. Mm-hmm. Like as we we're going there doing cache searches and the agricultural side of it that scatters around Fallujah because literally it's all agriculture kind of outside of Fallujah, the city, just like most cities around there. And he like it looks like Vietnam where you're at, and I was like, yeah, that's where they're doing a lot of the rocket attacks from. So, but anyways, so take us through that. You get into Kuwait. Uh, you guys are what Fort Beering probably or somewhere yep. Camp Beering. Yep, and uh, some good old Panda Express subway <laughs> the amenities. Yeah. Then we learned that Marines don't like fast food, or they're not allowed to like fast food. So we had not known we were maybe going to be at Al Takadam, TQ, which is where our battalion was going to be headquartered. There was a company that got sent over to Biop, uh, and they ended up over in Abu Ghraib. And then we found out Fallujah. <laughs> and and this was not terribly long after the Battle of Fallujah. Mm-hmm. 
the largest urban combat since I think Vietnam, World since War Way II. City, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, so we were like, all right, this is going to be serious. So we got there. We found out we were going to be force protection. So we we're going to be sitting in towers. So we thought all that and we were pissed because I, I wasn't going to volunteer for a deployment to sit in a tower and stare at nothing for 12 hours a day. Well, part of the plan, the infinite wisdom of the military, that seems like it makes no sense. There is a method to the madness. And so Colonel Bristol had a plan like he can't just say, go get them. Just go up there. And get, you have to get acclimated. You got to learn the AO. You got to all this stuff. So then we did towers for a couple of weeks learn and then they realize all right we have these bradley fighting vehicles because we're a mechanized infantry unit yeah let's put these things to use Mm -hmm. especially those FLIR cameras all the the foliage in that area gave a lot of cover to the insurgents yep so it was was a very difficult beneficial and they know the area they know Mm -hmm. the terrain they know the people so a lot of ambush and respond a a ton and by the time and, and especially to fire in mortars from a pickup truck and by the time counter battery fires, they're gone. Yeah. yeah. And they do it by houses. So then the counter bats landing in people's villages, they're getting pissed off at us. So, I mean, the insurgents in that area really hadn't been tested. The group, the unit we replaced, um, they went down there briefly. So we took over the very southern part of the sector was where the enemy activity was at its greatest. Um, went down right against the Euphrates River, part of Big Dip. They call it the, uh, the scrotum. Uh, because on the map it looks like one, <laughs> and that is where because they saw John in the shower. They did. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> the JK, the JK yeah. uh, portion of the map. So ended up where the unit before us went down there, suffered some casualties, and said, "We're good. We're not going back down there." So it really became the job of our unit to push the insurgents further than a, like a seven to eight mile radius, so they couldn't reach Camp Fallujah and the nineteen thousand people stationed on Camp Fallujah. Uh, Marines and Navy. We were pretty much the only uh, army unit on base, except there's a um, laundry unit. And so definitely a lot of looks at the uniforms and all that, some some laughs and stuff. But we so then we had to push them further away because there'd be days we're walking the Chow Hall PX mortars (laughs) are landing in our, you know, in our AL with little to no warning, injuring or killing people on base where they should be safe. So right. it became our job to really take the fight to the insurgents and really take an ab- aggressive approach to really winning that area mm-hmm. back. Yeah, the, the, and the, the kind of mentality of that whole area was uh, get out in the community, patrol base ops, mm-hmm. uh, be out there and be present. And that's it's always the, the joke from the infantry combat arm side when people say like, well, you know, in this warfare, there's no front lines. It's like, well, there's one big line. It's a circle around the fob. Yeah. And there's the infantry that goes yeah. outside yeah. side of that. So uh, it, there's, a, there's a, a shift in mentality uh, for, uh, you know, coming off of the big push through Fallujah where it was, okay, we're going to be just trying to secure uh, lines of uh, supply and route supply and try and do, you know, operations in sectors of city to uh, after the big push out, it was, okay, now as the insurgency kind of backfills because in the end of 04 when they did the big push there was kind of that void and then there wasn't a presence out in town and then these aren't local insurgents but coming across the border and yeah. it's like they're going to Ramadi and they're going to Fallujah and they're going to Sadr City and, and Baghdad all the way into there and they filled back into the community and it was okay now they know they don't want to go a straight you know toe-to-toe offensive now so it's going to be in the community it's going to be hit and run and the mm-hmm. only way to get eyes on that and to engage it is you got to get your Joes and your Marines out in the community 
and living in shit conditions, yep. living in, you know, uh, real Spartan conditions or no running water, you're eating local, you're eating, eating chow, you're not showering. Filling you, up their, the, whatever those are called. That's not a toilet. It's a hole in, in the, the ground. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah. It yeah. honestly looked like those old vi- photos from back when they just send logs down the river. <laughs> <laughs> like just <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, just, yeah. Uh, oh. yeah. Impressive, really. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, you hand the house back over to the people when you when you move to a different one. Yeah. And yeah. I got to imagine they come in and go, what do these guys yeah. eat? Airbnb yeah. rating, right. zero. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Yep, yeah. would not poop here again. Yeah. <laughs> so, not ideal. So, uh, so you roll into that. We left 20 of, bucks on the yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Leave them a chili yeah. mac. MRE, yeah, there you call go. it good. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you roll into that that type of operation, and so for like you, uh, for your specific like assignment, I, I I think I know a little bit of just from knowing you over the years. You, you kind of picked up on that patrol base outpost type operations mm-hmm. to have that continual presence and feel in the community. So kind of what was that like for you, and and how how were you guys set up? It took a minute because there is the the Midwestern like, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> Casual. Uh, they don't respond to that. And so then you, you do become more of a target. And they know they know when the new patches are in town. Mm-hmm. They see that it's different uniforms than they've seen for a while. And then they take liberty with that. They're like, here's, we can, we can mess with these ones. Mm-hmm. And so the attacks started ramping up. And then, and then once we got aggressive, there was a change in leadership. Uh, Colonel Bristol actually swapped out our commander for a new one. And uh, uh, Chip Rankin took over, and he's now the uh, brigade commander for the first brigade combat team. He was our company commander at that time, just an outstanding leader. And he realized, because at first kind of our, we we were told to do our job, but from the leadership standpoint, it was go out there, do your thing and get home safe, which is admirable. And we want to get home safe. We want our guys to get home safe, but it's not, we're there to do a job. Correct. We're there to win this fight. And so it changed once Rankin came in and it was, listen, we're going to be in some more danger initially we're going to go and let's win this thing we're going to be in a tough spot but we have to do it and so there was a learning curve we took it to them so it was we'd hit them they'd hit us we'd hit them the ieds really picked up and they were a fan of the old command or not the command wire but uh pressure plate yeah victim operator yep, yeah yep uh, and so the uh and i love that word too because it's like we want to, like we're the ones that are like oh, let's blow ourselves up but i mean that's <laughs> yeah. precisely yeah. what it is so they 100%. take garden hose they line the whole inside with wire run through uh run the wires through so if you step on it drive over it and see with saw blades it, too where they do it yeah because if we saw if we saw wires or we saw someone messing around our area of operations the rules of engagement were reasonable certainty yeah. which means pretty sure yeah um kind of vague but it lets you do your job other parts of where it was under our actual Minnesota National Guard command, it was a lot more strict. Where it's almost like you need to be shot at to return fire, which is dangerous. It's not ever yeah. a good thing. And then you become more of a target because they see you as soft. Mm-hmm. So this really then we kind of turned it on them. And we had to guard these two pup houses too, which was a really primary, a big part of our mission over there. Those pup houses are what drew the water from the Euphrates River through the irrigation canals that allowed the locals to grow crops. And then once the water got to the pump houses, pump house Barney and pump house Flanders, which you guys probably knew because RCT five was uh, uh, one of the RCTs Flanders was Theater. in our area, yeah. yeah. And so World War One, yeah. And I assumed that it was because Barney and Flanders. I assumed that it was uh, 
that it was Simpsons related. I was, gonna, uh, I was just yeah. going to ask, is that Simpsons related? And Marines named it, so come yeah. on. You're giving them too much credit. Yeah. So uh, that water would be pumped from the pump houses to Camp Fallujah to supply the base with water. So the insurgents knew if they hammer these pump houses, a base of 19,000 Marines and Navy mm-hmm. are going to be without water in the middle of the desert. Not a great situation. So we had to keep at least a squad out here at all times out at those pump houses to fight off any attacks, guide patrol. So in the middle of the tour, it ended up being where, all right, we built, we had the CBs come out, really fortify the places and build extra sleeping quarters. So then we started running patrols from there because it was easier to respond Mm -hmm. to these hit and run attacks. We could see them. We could see where they're at, have eyes on and really then close, close the rope on them uh, and just tie them in. And so that it, it really switched to that, really being more visible, being in the neighborhoods, yep. sure. like you had said. And uh, that's really when we started turning the tide. But that's when the IEDs started getting bigger and bigger and bigger because they wanted to take out those Bradleys. They don't care about the Humvees. Mm-hmm. Humvees, no big deal. They'll open those up like a can of peaches. Those Bradley fighting vehicles, 25 millimeter main gun, 32 tons of armor. They don't want to be on the business end of that. Machine. Right. That's a problem. Yeah. Correct. And that was, I mean, the time period, lucky you and me, I guess, uh, uh, you know, for that, that period, that's when you started seeing more complex IEDs originally yep. starting because they were filtered in 04, you know, and uh, 03, 04, but they were more command debt, the hard line outside of it. And then the Sineo base stations were, you know, they take a cordless phone and then hit like the page button. And that's the, they started using garage door openers yep. and then the key fobs for cars. And then those pressure plate or the victim, uh, you know, set ones too, that we were seeing out there. But not only we that, had the jammers though. I yeah, forget what they're yeah, called. Warlocks what, what, yeah, or hogs yeah. or something. Where yeah. it had the big dome yeah. and yeah. it would just go, it's where if you drove one of those through an American neighborhood, it would open everyone's garage door basically like it was just those are the ones they they pulled after we left because i think they caused cancer yeah (laughs) awesome that's 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 what's got me yeah Yeah. 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 you can hear it cooking you you know what i mean but at least i didn't get blown up oh wait oh man but like they were even like you know we were having like pressure plate like rockets like so when you would drive down they would have rockets set up for it too uh we didn't have efps in our area yet yeah thankfully those were up the road yeah that was on the northern side yeah uh, but like i mean even the the heavy stacks because of armor in the area and because of the bradleys too um that was that was the one uh that they hit on on june 20th for my platoon i mean that was a quad stack 155s with uh, i think phosphorus in it too and there's nothing you can do in that spot no and, no. It's, and these were these insurgents were the most awful of awful i mean they came in and they made it very clear because they were not they were not from mm-hmm. Iraq. These were not, not Iraqis. Locals. They were coming in, moving into these villages, blending in. And now our interpreters can sniff them out. Like if someone's right. here and they're from Alabama, we know they're not a Minnesotan. Right. Like, yeah. It's slightly obvious. And so with this, they they had such a grip on this area because of fear. Because if they if anyone messed, if, if they decided to cooperate with coalition forces or did not cooperate with the insurgents, our, our unit found multiple people killed, beheaded, hands by, bound behind their head, yep. and their heads just lying there. So, of course, those people aren't going to talk to us. I don't blame them. They were right. caught in the middle of this. Yep. So th- this group in there, they and they're the ones that really ramped up the IED attacks, the complex attacks. Uh, there was in August, mid-August, 
a very complex ambush at Pup House Flanders. And that was before it was extra fortified. So they were throwing grenades over. Uh, Sergeant, Sergeant Hammock's 2nd Platoon, 2nd Squad, they fought off. And it was maybe 10 guys. One squad fought off. Wow. 20-plus insurgents had, had to call in danger close mortars. All hell was breaking loose, but they won that battle. Mm-hmm. Um, close air support came in and cleaned up what they hadn't already gotten. Yeah. And then that is really kind of the, the switch flipped in that deployment when then uh, it got extra real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, 100 percent that that whole whole period, it seems weird looking back at now. And that's I mean, you know, people always throw it out there like, well, Iran sponsored this. Iran, and that's the people that were coming in there were, you know, equipped foreign nationals that had the the ability to it and and they were trained yeah these were not amateurs and, yeah and and not that you know things didn't happen but that's always you know talking to people coming home at first it's like well you know iraq's reasons we're going and the civilian casualties the u.s cause and it's like you don't know half the civilian casualties that were from the insurgents over Correct. there right and and not not to send a message to us but to send a message to the local to population you know where you just simply for a madrasa or a school taking uh, school supplies from U.S. forces, and not in exchange for any intel or anything else, mm-hmm. just because they need school supplies. And you would come back a week later, and the principal's head would have been cut off, or their family would have been executed just for taking papers and pencils from yeah. U.S. forces. And that's different a, set of rules over there, for yeah. sure. And that's actually, you know, you talk about the Sunni uh, when they mentioned the Sunni awakening that kind of turned the tide. That's after you guys left, after we left, it's because that population we were for part of it towards yeah. the end of uh, the yeah. beginning of it. But that's the that population finally realized that hey, when we don't you know give the Americans intel in their home, they don't come back and execute our wife at night and then yeah. take our dad. You know, they just go about their merry way. But when we don't you know get on board with these foreign nationals in here that are trying to kill Americans, they'll come back and they'll you know cut the hands off my daughter and they'll shoot my father and then they'll you know take take family members and sell them into you know their the slaveries and stuff that we know now that isis was doing years later too like that's that was happening at that time but you just didn't hear about it because rightfully so when the u.s has a higher standard for accountability because of the great country we live in uh, but that kind of gets lost in that process so you were dealing with that kind of stuff i imagine the psychological side of dealing with it and then trying to be still present in the community because once you guys are there for a while you had to start building relationships we did yep um Americans had gotten tired of Beanie Babies, so they mm-hmm. started shipping those over by the case. So we're giving those to kiddos. And um, <laughs> on those tough days, I think that was probably my favorite part of being over there is seeing these kids with stuff that if you give an American kid, well, my daughter, if I give her a coloring, coloring book and crayons, she loves it. Right. She loves it. Most other kids are like, get yeah. this away from me. No, yeah. I, give me an iPad or what, something. What game can I play on this? Exactly, yeah. yeah. yeah that so, Beanie Baby was going to be worth a million dollars one day. Probably. But now it's yours. Yeah. And now it's in shambles. Yeah. Marine, uh, Marine kids start eating the crayons. That's so. right. <laughs> that's the problem right there. So, so at this point, things, as you said, uh, things start to get really real. Uh, so how does this, where does this fall into place as it leads up to you uh, getting uh, getting injured, getting ID'd? So by the, by the end of 2006, we had... Um, Things had ramped up, like I had said, uh, and then we on one morning. So December second, two thousand and six, is obviously the worst day of my life. That's when uh, we hit that IED, and we went out to watch an intersection. We we're doing an OP uh, to watch for someone burying IEDs. It was uh, really the only intersection that would allow us 
to get to the southern part of that sector where that enemy activity was. So they knew it. It was a choke point. So they put IEDs in all the time. So we needed to find out who was doing it and uh, take care of them. And went out there, sat surrounded by weeds and cattails, which, again, never pictured to be doing in Iraq. Yeah. And we got spotted by a goat farmer once the sun came up. Of course, the insurgents never showed up. But the goat farmer spotted us, so we had to leave our spot, obviously, in case they were cooperating. Went back, ate chow, watched He-Man, cartoons on DVD. And then uh, our lieutenant woke us up because we had taken naps. He was up watching for suspicious activity, and he spotted some to the south through the big floor camera. Looked crazy suspicious. So five of us, he said he needed five volunteers. Five of us said, we'll go. And then there was a Bradley fighting vehicle ahead of us, three-man crew. So we went down there, checked out everything. I mean, I would have bet the farm that they were up to no good. Yep. And I mean, they were kind of up to no, but nothing dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't doing legal activities, but it wasn't anything that was a threat to coalition forces or security in Iraq. Um, I think they were running a, a, a place where uh, gentlemen can go and have a good time oh. with gals. Right. Yeah. So. Um, golf course? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, that's it. Yeah. Golf course. Yeah. So that's that's what it appeared to be. Uh, and one of our guys, I think, wanted to be a <laughs> wanted to be a customer, and we said no. Yeah. Uh, and so then we were walking back, and our, our gunner, Marine Lance Corporal Bruce Miller, had... Uh, informed us that the radio that headquarters had just called and said one of the raven drones those janky ones was flying above and spotted somebody digging the road at checkpoint three four so we had to go check it out we knew they weren't planting flowers in the mm-hmm. road so we had it that way and i remember calling in checkpoint three one checkpoint three two and i'll never forget as we called in checkpoint three three we had a round a 90 degree turn to the south for the last stretch of road before where that individual had been digging and as we rounded that corner i heard this loud metallic plink like if you throw a, a huge rock into an empty metal drum uh and uh, this loud like whooshing sound like if you do a cannonball into a swimming pool uh i don't remember flying through the air i don't remember hitting the ground but i remember waking up on the ground hearing rocks still falling uh rocks hitting the metal rocks hitting the ground uh, i heard tim yelling what's going on what happened where's brian so I joke that uh, obviously I didn't want to believe what had happened, but I've been a Minnesota Vikings fan my whole life. So I'm always ready for the worst case scenario. <laughs> so I open my eyes. I see that brand new fully up armored Humvee. Um, and from what I was told, Marines don't get new Humvees very often. This was a new USMC with the serial number on the hood. This thing was a month old. We had to rip the plastic off the seats when we first got it. Uh, that thing was opened up like a can of peaches. It was on its side facing the wrong direction, completely destroyed. The doors were blown 100 yards away, which those take four strong dudes to lift. Correct. Yeah. Could you hear all right at this point? It, I mean, it was still like, it was like that. I mean, similar to when yeah, you I were just hit. Yeah, it was so it's hard. Like this ring, such a high-pitched ringing. But yeah. I could hear Tim saying, where's Brian? What happened? What's going on? Because um, he had been blown out, but hanging on the top of the vehicle and kind of crawled and fell down to the ground. And he was disoriented, big head injury. And so I looked down, I saw that my left leg above the knee was opened up like a baked potato with my femur sticking out. And everybody broken. says, does it hurt? And for me, it was just a general hurt. It just hurt yeah. everywhere. It like was an uncomfortable kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where it's not, you couldn't, if you said, you can't look down, what is injured? Everything. I just said, I don't know. I, it just hurts. Yeah. It hurt, yeah. It's like a, like a. I felt warm and itchy. I was very, like very tingly. Yes. Tingly, yeah. That's how I was described it as tingly. It felt like... Uh, I think the body's going, 
holy hell what's going on but, but the tingle is very intense <laughs> like it's it just feels very deep you know and uh and i know those that, those minutes when you're just trying to get your bearings back and you're in your the hardest thing for me at first when i was was trying to catch my breath you know I, I had the wind knocked out of me so bad so were you initially knocked out you think that 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 your body had caught up on wind you know or like you had caught your you know do you think you got i don't remember being short of breath <laughs> yeah um i felt like because i could talk Oh, right sure. away. Yep. So the part I was knocked out once the bomb went off. Yep. And I was ejected because I didn't like fall out of the. I was thrown from the vehicle. Sure. Um, Tim was the only one that survived that was not blown out of the vehicle, and so, yeah, sitting there and I tried to move. My body armor was jankst. I mean, it was all shattered and like crumpled up. But my left arm, both the ulna and the radius were broken, so that was flop. So I remember, I do remember kind of pushing to go and move myself, and my arm was flopping. So I was like, well, that's not any help. Right. So I applied traction, the stuff I learned in EMT training I didn't expect to have to use on myself. Applied that traction to my chest. The right leg below the knee was, I could basically hear it bleeding. That one was actually like Yeah, arterial bleeding, yeah. Yeah. And so I was, at that moment, I was pretty sure my life was going to end. Right. So those guys, uh, thankfully, we go through combat lifesaver training. So those guys in the Bradley ahead of us, they thought they hit the bomb. So they came rushing back. The two guys in the turret came out to provide first aid. The driver went up into the turret to watch our back because one of the main things in that area, too, they would set up IEDs, the insurgents, as an ambush. Complex ambush. Yep. And they'd wait till the help arrived because the help's worth more than us. Right. Yep. They're, they're a lot more valuable on the battlefield than a regular old infantryman. So that... As if that was another Humvee, we were getting ambushed, yep. 100%. Um, but that Bradley, they don't want to deal with that machine, and that's a, the wise decision. So then the guys came out. Adam Gallant was the first guy that came up to me from Plummer, Minnesota, and he's such a just a straight shooter. He does not sugarcoat anything. He looked at me and said, Crease, I'm not going to lie to you, dude. Your legs are really bad. And I was like, well, well, you don't say. <laughs> yeah. I'm staring at my bones. But he yeah. said, we're going to get you out of here. You're going to be good. So he put a tourniquet on my right leg. That's the one that was bleeding a ton. He tightened that. He's like, I'll be right back. I need to check on the others. Was like, I'll be right here. Yeah, not going anywhere. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then Todd came over, my buddy Todd Everson. He lives in the cities now, but he's up from northwest Minnesota, too. He's the opposite. He comes up to me and he goes, this big fake smile. This fakest smile I saw <laughs> until I went into politics. And he goes, Crease. He's like, hey, buddy. You look great. <laughs> He's like, everything's going to be awesome. You're going to be home soon. You're going to see your family. You look amazing. And the whole time he's got this fake nervous smile. And I'm like, don't piss on my back and tell mm. me it's raining. Right. So he, but he was doing his best. He put the tourniquet on my right leg, got everything to stay. Uh, and then they came over because I could hear one of my friends to my left fighting for his life. Yeah. And I knew that for one... I didn't want to see that. If I didn't survive this, I'll never unhear the sounds he was making. Yeah, for sure. And um, it's the worst feeling in the world because you're helpless because totally there's nothing helpless. you can do for them. And uh, you're just you, in a way, you just wish it was over for him, you know, and you're just it's, it's honestly the worst feeling in the world. They're, they're, so I was like, he's either dead or he's dying. And there's so I didn't look and I I'd already lost a ton of blood. So I had to stay calm. So I just closed my eyes. I was like, I'm going to close my eyes and chill out. Terrible idea. Mm -hmm. So then those guys are running around. They see, and when I closed my eyes, I fell asleep. I was dreaming. I was dreaming about playing Little League baseball, which is bizarre. Um, 
Because that's definitely not like the peak of my life. Right. I yeah. hope that that wasn't, it wasn't downhill. That's where you highlighted. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like my dad nicknamed me Johnny Walker. The first year <laughs> I was afraid to swing the bat. I ended up all right. But yeah. Um, so life was kind of flashing before my eyes. Like you've talked yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, the weird feeling. But at the time, we don't realize that that's what's happening. So those guys, they're dealing with the five casualties. They see me. They slap me in the face. They're like, stay awake. I was like, all right. Yeah. Bleeding out is super euphoric. Yeah. In a, in a weird way. In a weird way. It's it's uh, it is like I would imagine like some type of. Well, I mean, some of the drugs you're on in the hospital. Yeah, absolutely. Ketamine. Yeah. <laughs> that was a ketamine being the one. That was a good yeah. ride. Yeah. And. Then they came by again, and I then I couldn't stay awake. I kept falling asleep, and they'd they'd up the slapping game. <laughs> yeah. And the last one, the third one, I'm pretty sure they didn't open their hand because I was I think that was the most severe injury I got that day because it was I think just a straight right hook to the side of the head. And they're like, "Damn it!" I said, "Stay awake." Yeah. You got my attention. You got my attention. So they they lifted me because they had to move that brat that their the Humvee was lying on top of my friend that they were trying to rescue, mm-hmm. and if it tipped over, it was going to crush us both. So they, they moved me, and that hurt. They had to flip my legs up onto my chest. That would be horrendous. And uh, that's a sight I'll never forget. I was never flexible, so I was like, holy smokes. Yeah, I'm in tough shape. Yeah. That's and it. then they, my, my pelvis was shattered, too. Oh. So they, they didn't know. They grabbed under my arms. The only other spot to grab was my slabs. Sure. Oh, so you just and, shifted. And so it was like a, mush. Like when you shake a box with broken glass, it was yeah. like that. And uh. they had to move me away so they could keep working on my buddy. I remember that when they moved me, I felt like that was Was your the pelvis most, mess? Your no, back no, was though, no, right? no. I was all intact. Uh, my, my pelvis was good. My, my limbs were just, you know, essentially blown off. But when they moved me, they slung my foot and my foot was riding on my belly, you know. And I, I remember that was when I was like, this is going to kill me. That, that's when I just, the pain was so overwhelming when they started moving me. And, and that's I when can't I felt imagine, pain. I can't I imagine, oof. During the movement. Yeah, having your pelvis broke too and everything else. And well, So I, at that point, I let out a, yeah, a yeah. loud yell because they moved, because I, I knew it was going to suck. Because Adam, like I said, the guy that doesn't mm-hmm. shoot he says, Crease, we're going to have to move you. This is going to suck really bad. And I, it's a great narrator. I was yeah. like, all right. I, I don't think it could get any worse, Adam. Right. Try. It, I was wrong. It got a lot worse. Yeah. yeah. So you, uh, just for general understanding, you, you were the vehicle commander yes. of the vehicle, so you're riding shotgun yes. next to the driver. Yes. And so where was Tim then? Seat behind me. So directly behind shotgun, and then who else did you have in the vehicle? Uh, Brian McDonough was the driver, and Corey Ristead was behind the driver. Uh, Marine Lance Corporal Bruce Miller was uh, sticking out of the top. He was the 50 cal gunner. Sure. Okay. And so he had gotten shot out. And when they realized they had to deal with the others, because, again, I was not the most severely injured. Yeah. Um, they had Bruce sit by me and keep me talking. Problem is, Bruce Bruce had his bell rung pretty good. I think he, he clearly had a concussion, but I think he had one before the deployment started. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so they said, keep Creasel talking. So he kept, hey, Sergeant Creasel, where do you live? Cottage Grove, Minnesota. What's your favorite team? Minnesota Vikings. He was like, let him die. He'll be better off. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, and then he's like, what's your favorite color? I was like, blue. He's like, Roger, Roger. And he's like, Sergeant Creasel, where do you live? So like the third time through this, I was swearing at him. I'm like, get the F away from yeah. me. Leave me alone. And he's like, negative. He's asking me the questions, keeping me alert. And that's when I felt it. myself actually start to get very cold. And I was pretty sure things were wrapping up at that point. So I, was, I said my prayers. 
wanted to survive, but I I, I did not think I was going to make and it. And QRF is not there. Nobody's rolled up yet? Not yet. Nope. They had already called the helicopter, obviously, and we're sitting there. And, and I grabbed Adam, and I looked at him, and I said, tell my family I love him. Yeah. And he said, shut up. You're going to tell them yourself. And uh, I think that's the first time that day I felt any type of hope. And, I, and it really did kind of reinvigorate me because I was so tired i mean do you remember like that exhaustion and it's your body just i think saying this is enough man yeah i was to the point where i was doing the shake in my head left right because i couldn't even talk anymore you know just trying to make a conscious effort to stay alive you know and uh in those in those in those moments of of feeling like you're at the end of your life you know uh it's it's uh when somebody gives you hope like i say one you know my books tell five minutes you know because that the guy for between the chopper and the hospital told me if i could stay awake for five more minutes i promise you your life and, and you're like holding your deal. eyelids open like deal. Yeah. yeah too easy <laughs> too easy you know but in those moments, just having somebody believe in you or having somebody say, hey, you know, you're going to tell them yourself, you know, or you stay awake for five minutes, I'll promise you your life. Just having that person that's going, well, I, I think I've already agreed. I already, I already accepted the fact that I don't think I'm making it out of this situation. Which but, is tough because you don't ever want to be like that. You don't want to quit. But, but, but it's, it's the reality of the situation. Yeah. We've already seen going on around us for the last how many months people dying everywhere. You're just you're just kind of like, all right, well, it's, it's my turn in a sense. You know, it's my time, you know. And to have that one person go, no, you're going to do it. You're like, oh, you, you really think I got a shot? Well, I'm going to I'm going to I can dig a little deeper right now, you know. And he says to this day that he thought. I was going to make it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was like, I didn't. He had more faith in me than I did. And so, yeah, I sat. And then the helicopter showed up. Yeah. Uh, it was a CH-46 C night. And then they had a oh, Cobra wow. with, too, because if there was an ambush, they would clean that up. That's yeah. when QRF came. And one of our young medics jumped out of the back. And he clearly hadn't seen anything like this before because he comes running over to me. Hey, Sergeant Chris. Whoa. <laughs> and I'm like, well, for God's sake, can you <laughs> yeah. pretend? Thanks, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. Nothing really to do here. Let me yeah. get a Band-Aid on there for you, John. You're fine. Yeah. 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 Hey, you're good. You want a Paw Patrol Band-Aid? <laughs> yeah. You remember, though, combat lightsaber training. What's yeah. the first thing you do? Yeah, reassure the victim. Reassure yeah. the goddamn casualty. Yeah. Like, Todd was like, hey, man, that shrapnel fixed your face. Todd yeah. was doing a great <laughs> job pretending. Yeah. Talking shit. Yeah. 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 And, and so... This medic goes, I'm going to give you morphine. Sticks the morphine in my thigh. Good and night. I and I and I looked at uh, he, he, when he said, I'm going to give you morphine. For some reason, my response was whatever, dude. Yeah, right. Stuck in my thigh. They load me on the helicopter. Uh, that thing took off. I remember a couple other people <laughs> getting loaded on the nurse. The flight nurse was like, I need to know your Social Security number, John. And I was like, oh, boy, I'm going to die. They want to open up a credit card. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I well, couldn't even get the first number out. And that's the last thing I remember till I woke up in yeah, the United States. Cue the big Lebowski. That, yeah. that. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, yeah. just drifted yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah. They shocked me back to life three times at the, at the field hospital, which I didn't know Jesus. until Jim was writing my book. He interviewed Chip Rankin. It's a little dramatic, John. Yeah. And so I was like, I knew I was close to dying. But when I heard Chip Rankin say he was in... The hospital, they, they were doing training over there. The commanders were from all the different uh, companies in our battalion. And they said, hey, one of your patrols got hit hard. Whacked, Smoked, yeah. So so he hustled over to the hospital. I think he said that my one of my legs fell on and he helped pick it up. 
And then he said that he watched them shock me back to life three times. Was that at Fallujah Surgical or TQ? TQ. Okay, yep. I was gonna say because Fallujah couldn't have handled it. Correct, because yeah. that's Weird. that's the one thing that's talking about your timeline of things is you're talking about the size of that's like gunshot wound the, missing organs. Correct. Situation. Fob yeah. Fallujah. They, they didn't have a, a real good medevac. You know, you were either going to TQ or to Balad, depending yep. on which way. And was, so then I went to Balad from there. But they had to shock me back to life. They put me in a. They call it a hot pocket where they zip you up and there's just a tube sticking out. Yeah. So poor Tim. Tim had this terrible brain injury. He's still, they had to tell him to shut up because he was asking the same questions over and over, kind of like Bruce. And then he saw me in that hot pocket and he lost it because he thought I had died. Right. Oh, and they said, no, no, this is just to keep his body temperature warm where it needs to be because Playboy is missing some yeah. some of his radiators. And to keep so. all that, yeah. And and I know for me, I had so much mud and debris yeah. packed and yeah, all my wounds stuff. from the field, you know, and stuff. And, and that stuff has to, like, work. Washed out, yeah. Continue washed knew. out, yeah. Uh, continue I thought, like, washed so, out. sew me up. And yeah. it be, no, they got to let it ooze out. Get it cleaned out, yeah, and let that let the body kind of wash itself out in a sense. But when they moved me from the litter onto the, onto the operating room table, that's when I realized how little was left of me. Oh yeah. When they grab because you know was they, it one of the, the metal table. Yeah, because yeah. it's not it's not like they can it's not like they can grab your limbs to move you because I didn't have any. You know, my, literally both my arms were essentially blown off, both my legs are blown off, and when the way they grabbed me, I was like, oh, I'm I'm. They get the little corn cob. Yeah, yeah, basically is what it was, you know. <laughs> and the table was so cold. Do you remember getting thrown on the table? Not there at Walter Reed. Yes, oh, I was they, still in the cold, and and that hurt, especially with the pelvis. It's so oh. cold. It's so cold. Yeah, that's first. That's the first thing I thought of. I thought, you know, we have the technology to drop a nuke on anything. You know, we got these fighter jets that fly this fast. We can shoot down balloons. My now. steering wheel gets <laughs> piping hot. Yeah. Yeah. Eat the damn table. Right. That's just a reflex. I always say the first time I jumped without legs was the first thing they threw me on the table. Uh, uh, yeah. So did you? When? How long were you out for then? Eight days. Oof. Yep. And so it was really. It feels like Walt, a flash, right? Walter Reed is where you were. Yep. So it was TQ Balad Longstool, and Longstool is where my family was flown over. Um, I think that's, and I'd missed three flights back because my situation deteriorated, so they didn't think I was going to make it. So right. I think the ex-wife was probably sad when she heard I was going to pull through. She <laughs> wasn't getting that really? SGLI to 400K. Uh, really? Can I speak to that doctor? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Is there anything less you can do? I've, I've already spent that 400K. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then I, so the first thing I remember is when I woke up at Walter Reed to an unfamiliar woman's voice being like, John, John, do you know where you're at? So it was just, it was like college. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and I looked around, I saw it was a hospital room. I was like, oh boy, this is not, this better not be heaven. Otherwise right. I'd be lied to. And, um, that's when reality really set in, um, the, uh, yeah, I saw the injuries and then the, I asked, where's, where's Tim? Where's Nellie? And she said, he got banged up pretty bad, but he's still in Iraq. He's going to return to duty in a couple weeks. And so I was like, all right, awesome. And then I said, what about the others? And that's when really the look on her face, they didn't have to say anything, but I knew at that point. But then they told me that Corey Ristead from Red Lake Falls and Brian McDonough from Maplewood had both been killed. And mm. for me, that's the that's the rock bottom. It's that's the worst. The worst, because like there's nothing that can that can no. get be fixed or we can make it no right training. or yeah yeah no yeah training we, we never talked so about that oh. you know and 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 honestly you know you're just you know when i lost my best friend i i got to go out and patrol and try to find the men that did it you know and try to hold somebody responsible but still for think it. of how crazy it is though that you have to go back to work 
Well, I mean, you know within, I mean? within hours, yeah, within hours, you're back out patrolling, you know. But I think about like your situation where you you were in the same incident with these guys that lost their lives, and there's nothing you can do to make this right at all. All, all abilities have been stripped from you, basically, and then you're laying in a bed. And you have to, you, you can't, you just have to think. That's all you can do. That's all you have left to do is think, you know? And uh, you have your own situation that you need to deal with right. uh, mentally and physically. And now you need to deal with the loss of your friends. Uh, that's a lot to take on at, at one point, right? Yeah. Especially, yeah, waking up. And that was the thing is I'm glad, I'm very glad I was awake after the bomb went off. So Same. I could see it and say, process it a bit i'm probably going to die then when i woke up at walter reed i was like oh my gosh i made it now it would be so much tougher i think to wake up at walter reed and go hold on we were just on patrol what's going on here and then seeing that is that i was able like you said to process it jack and then hearing that they both died and then seeing my situation i realized at that moment and i say but and i 100 mean it is that's when I started living my life because I realized then, regardless of my injuries, regardless of the road to recovery ahead of me, it'd be crappy and selfish of me to feel sorry for myself when I got a second chance at life that two of my best friends didn't get. And that is what motivated me. That is what said, I'm going to make the best out of every minute I have left on this planet. And that's really what I've tried to do and honor those guys. And when we go deer hunt, we deer hunt with the Ristead family, and we call it Camp Corey. We honor him every day. We honor Brian every day. We lost Jimmy Wasica a month later in a separate V-bed attack. Ugh. And and it's the, the loss of these guys is never going to stop hurting, mm-hmm. ever. Right. And that's good. If it stops hurting, something's wrong with us. Yeah. But it gives us a chance to honor them and really pause and appreciate the life we have here. In spite of the challenges we have, we get to hug our families. We get to live the lives we live. We get to deal with this cold-ass Minnesota winter. Right. Um, Everybody's life is hard, but we have a life, you know? That's it. We have the ability to make our lives whatever we want to make it now, you know, going forward, you know? And and we could have chose to lay in bed the rest of our lives and and let the world pass us by and let everybody feel sorry for us and thank us for our service and, and, you know, lay there and do nothing with it. But just like you, I I, I was laying there and, and I thought to myself, what a slap in the face would be to the guys that drug me off the battlefield that day, the guys that risked their lives to save mine, and, and, and the guy that brought that plane down into a, a hot LZ or into a place that they knew could have been ambushed You guys were in taking minutes. fire when you got hit, yes. were you not? Yeah. Yes, and it's like, you know, these guys that, that should have went and continued the fight, right? These guys that probably should have went and pulled the perimeter and secure the area, you know, instead of helping you in a sense, right? Or, or going and, you know, doing these things. But these guys make the choice to risk their lives to save yours in the middle of this stuff. And it's just like these guys lost their lives riding in the same truck as you. And I, 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 I don't owe it to myself, but I owe it first to these guys. 100%. You know, that, that, that put themselves in these situations to go live my life to the most. And just like, just, I think that's when me and you go out and we speak and we share our messages and stuff. It's like, we don't want you guys to have to go through a horrible no. situation to understand what we went through. We went through a really, really bad situation, and it would be a waste of a sacrifice if we didn't share this with you, our experiences that we had, so that you can utilize these things in your life to make your life the best without having to go through the situations that we had to. Correct. 100%. And that's that's the – I mean, you're living 
for more than one life. You're living for those lives that don't get that opportunity. And, and, you know, you guys spreading that message and, and, you know, uh, the surviving side of it. And it's like, well, don't, again, don't feel bad for us. Like we're, we're living on bonus time and we got other people's time to make up for that can't be here. And that's one of the, the best things. I mean, wounded or not combat side of it or people that are serving. I know there's a lot of talk about transition and how people, and a lot of it is finding that sense of purpose and mission and what you do afterwards. But for the, the, the critically wounded like you two, and then the combat too, is think about those men and women, you know, that were, don't have a tomorrow that don't have right. a today to you know have a shitty day at work that don't have a chance to volunteer in the community that don't have a, a opportunity to improve their little fighting position in the civilian world and make what what's uh what's not necessarily the best case scenario a better case scenario by your involvement i'm sure when people see us out and about john you know the guys missing these limbs you know laughing more than anybody else they've ever seen laughing their life and have the best time ever and and never stop smiling they're probably wondering how in the heck these guys are doing it but what kind of drugs are those guys yeah, yeah absolutely i want what they got the but, best kind but uh, <laughs> only the finest yeah but i mean really i mean i'm sure it blows people's mind thinking how can these guys be so happy with so little you know right. what i mean you know half of their bodies are gone and and these guys can still find a way to make the best out of every single moment but i I think that that we have a different perspective on life that that we can that we can help people try to understand the things that we've went through and and uh, uh, that life really isn't the things everybody finds in life to be so so blunt or so hard or whatever that we can find a way to smile about because it's really not that big of a deal at the right. end of the yeah. day you know hundred percent. So you've got you you got the injury and now you've kind of got a new look and new focus on life. What was what was the first thing? Was the first noticeable change or thing that you did, you know, after, I mean, I'm sure recovery obviously took quite a while, Mm -hmm. Um, but then you started to relive your life in a new way. What was that like? It was, uh, it was weird because I remember sitting in the hospital and thinking the job that I wanted since I was a 10 year old kid. I can never do again. Male dancer. Ever. Yes. <laughs> Exotic dancer. Yeah, yeah. Traveling the United States for crowds of screaming women. Yeah, one of the name Mike Honcho and everything. Yeah. 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 It was all going to look a little different in yeah. only the bow tie now. Yeah, these right. prosthetic legs. But EMT, St. Paul firefighter was kind of what you were Yeah, and, and that too. So it was like all of all of a sudden it was, I have to find my new normal. Yeah. And, and at first kind of scrambling to be like, what am I going to do? Trying to your point, finding my new normal. So and you confusing. Can't, and you can't force it. And I realized at one point that it, it kind of comes to you. And I had, uh, so I got to a point in the Minnesota guard said, you can stay in and we'll have you on AGR active guard reserve till your 20 years are up and you can retire. And I said, I'm not going to sit in a desk and take, someone's position that's deployable right i'm not gonna do right. that and so it's, i decided it, it seems a little pity right in a yeah. sense yeah. you know you're just you know i don't have to do anything i can kind of do whatever i want you mm-hmm. guys are going to keep me around there's not a lot of purpose in that there's no. not a lot of team in that there's not a lot of you know uh you know, it, it seems a little pity in a sense. And, and at that time, I remember at that time, you're like, no, I'm, I got to go do this for myself. That's it. Yeah. I got to go find my new thing. And so I, um, so then I found out, all right, I can be a civilian marketing contractor for the guard. They offered, I was at governor Palenti's fishing opener in 2008. <laughs> I was still going through my med board to get out of the military. And I ran into Lieutenant Colonel Jake Colzer. So he was head of the recruiting and retention battalion. And he's like, I want you to work for me. 
Oh, God. what? You working as a recruiter? That seems yeah. like the worst like, idea ever. You, you want me to scare off any recruits? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Say, be all you can be, playboy. Look at yeah. these legs. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You want the good parking spots? I'm your guy. Um, <laughs> Free lunch on no. uh, November 11th? Yes. Yeah. 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 You want oh, yeah. Applebee's? Hell yeah. Um, so I was like, well, it sounds interesting. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be in the military anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm going through the med board. So then they hired me as a c- civilian contractor. I got to work with the National Guard and help do recruiting flyers. Worked on partnerships between the National Guard and the Minnesota Wild. Oh, that's Helped cool. with the Dacher boards there and the Minnesota Vikings. I found a sense of purpose. I was like, listen, I have a nine to five job that I can go to and, and contribute. Yeah. And that's when I, then I realized, all right, I, I got asked to run for office. Ran for the Minnesota House of Representatives. Yeah, how I'll, am I supposed to run for office without any feet? True. Yeah, that's a good. Way, and I use that one all the time. Yeah, I had like, to. You're gonna run again? I can't run. Yeah. Um, I out, I outdoor knocked my opponent. He has two legs. I mean, that's a. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah right. Let's Pro- go. Probably diabetes too, then. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> if you outdoor knocked her. Yeah. Uh, lazy and entitled is what I would say. Um, and then, so I won that election. And then after that, that's when I found out. I, I wrote the book, still standing with Jim Cosmo. To, you know, to greatest guy point. ever. She, he's the best. He's the greatest guy ever. Yeah. She, and he has to put up with me all the time. Right. And so he and he's retiring now. So Kayla's going to take over planning the speeches Wonderful. and stuff. But he, um, we wrote that book, sold a ton of copies. Sharing the story makes it a lot. It's a great more. book too. If anybody hasn't read it, hundred uh, percent, go buy, get it on Amazon, and it's from another author. If you buy it on Amazon. Leave a review for us, damn it. It helps us. Oh, yeah, good point. I never you know, and you got to buy the book. You got to buy the book to leave the review. So if you're buying it online on Amazon and not off one of our websites, you know, leave us a review. It really yeah. helps. And uh, so then after that, I was like sharing the story, like to Jack's point, teaching people what we've learned without them having to go through it has been awesome. I can't believe I got to do it. And so now to a point where it's like 60 speeches a year. Throughout the United States, done Mexico, might do Jamaica next year. So all these things, I truly can't believe how life turned out. And I realize that, and I tell people too that are going through hardship, and it's and I'm not one to be like, let me tell you about your hardship and how you right. should have. But when things happen to you, whether it's, you know, I've been through a divorce, I've lost my legs, this and that, you have to allow good things to happen to you. Yes. And, and a lot of that is not feeling sorry for myself. There's, you can be having the best day. Bad news is right around the corner. And that's not an we, ominous way of looking at it, but it's saying, enjoy the moment, have the right attitude. And then when you get through that adversity, you can learn from it, grow from it. And if you're focused on the good all the time and smiling and laughing, when you have a bad day, it's a tiny bump in the road because of that mindset. It's like, how bad is your situation? Like, If we can turn this situation into, a, in, into something positive, what can't anybody else take into a bad situation right. and turn it positive? You know, I mean, it, it, even going through the worst times, right? I always talk about in Afghanistan, in some of the lowest, darkest places in time, we still found ways to laugh. We yeah. still found ways to have fun. Uh, we were still joking with each other. We're still picking on each other. We're still pulling pranks. You know, we're still doing all these things in the worst places that we've ever been in our lives and having a good time. And I think that's kind of where that bug gets instilled in all of us, you know, infantrymen, us grunts, is you throw us in the worst places under the worst conditions and we find a way to smile bigger than we've ever smiled in our lives, you know. And you sit here and you rip our limbs off us. You do these things and we just smile and laugh and just say, really, this is really 
basically life this is what you got for me yeah. like I, I got more if you still want to keep going rounds you know right and we just kind of started figuring out how to navigate our way through these adversities and before you know it, you find yourself thinking, what can't life throw at me at this point that I right. can't overcome? And we, be, in, in a sense, we feel we, we become unstoppable. You know, as soon as it sounds crazy, like when I talk about just touching my nose for the first time, so I can eat a drink again, you know, it's just getting that little momentum to all of a sudden, you know, here you are, you know, authoring your first book and you're giving your first speech and you're doing these things and you're like, man, I really turned a bad situation into a positive thing, and now I feel unstoppable. And then you and you show other people, too, that when they have something bad, and it's not, again, being very careful to not compare adversities, because, of course, mm -hmm. bad stuff that happens to people, it's not the same as yeah. having your legs blown up. I get it. But after that happens, and I remember thinking, I've made it through this. I've got life by the, by the short and curlies. Yeah. Nothing bad's ever going to happen to me again. And that's false. And I learned, yeah. I realized, I found out my first marriage was an open marriage, but no one told me about it. Right. And, I, right. and if, if I hadn't been through what I had been through, that would have been awful. But when it happened, I kind of laughed and was like, seal it, moved on. Nobody died. And to the point, no one died. And instead of me sitting and sulking and feeling sorry for myself... I got back on the horse and said, hey, it is what it is. I'm going to make the best of it. I, otherwise, you think I would have got remarried and had a kid. No one wants to be around a salty, angry. Iraq war veteran. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> just Take a, a shower, man. Just okay. a burn pit son of a gun. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and then you go, and it's like recently I got bad news that I had a lump on my cheek. It turned out that it is cancer. At first, yeah, it's, not, it's scary. scary. It's yeah. scary as hell. But I sat, I was up at deer camp when I found out and realized this is not the end of the world. Especially I'm, you were with, too. Right, and yeah. I was yeah. with the Ristads. I was with Tim and Todd, who were there that day. Yeah. I, my closest friends thought about it, processed it, sat in a deer stand, thought about it, hit it head on, and was like, all right, I'm going to get this thing. And then and, I get good news that it didn't spread, all that. But it's like that, the things that happen to you, you can't control, but you absolutely can control how you respond. Right. No, absolutely. And, and that's that's exactly what I was going to say is, you know, it's it's you're surrounded by great people. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't, you know, control things that you can't control and right. don't worry about the things that you can, right? You can't control your attitude, the ways that you react to these things, but you're not a surgeon. You, you don't know anything about biology. No. Like, you know, like, what are you going to do? You just have to show up to your appointments you know hope that you get in front of the right people and you can get the best outcomes with the best treatment i mean that's all you can do is, is put yourself in the best situation possible and deal with it right we just call it surgery number 36 yeah there you go. i like that hey i want to want to hit that up too i know we kind of glossed over it but uh, the run in in the house of representatives mm -hmm. what what kind of precipitated that for like a, a looking to serve and i know you said you were you know kind of approached and talked about it, but there had been some desire to do something and still continue in service and so kind of what was your thought going into that process insight of the stock market uh, yeah i wanted yeah. to get all the best <laughs> investing tips yeah. um no i just always wanted to and it was part of it was serving in a different capacity finding something meaningful to do i always thought i'd be decent at it i have opinions and i feel like so they asked me to run and i found out after the fact after i won that they were like yeah, we didn't think you had a chance <laughs> and so I, I i'm a republican that won in a metro county in a in a county that a republican had never won before i was the first republican to ever win and i don't have crazy views and that's part of it too but i i worked my butt off they asked me nicely is what it comes down to mm -hmm. they were like listen we think you'd be good at it whatever you th we think you'd win all these things that ended up being lies and uh <laughs> 
I was like, I've got nothing else. Like, what would be a better way to prove that I have something to offer and that physically I'm back to my fighting strength than it was two and a half years after that I decided to run and I door knocked my butt off and won. And so it was, that's kind of what started it. And the more I knocked on doors, the more I wanted that job. And as weird as it sounds, when I would drive to the National Guard Armory in Roseville for my marketing job every day, I would cover the side of my face so I didn't see the Capitol. Because I was like, do not look at the trophy until you've won. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was the, I worked so hard. And when I won, it was one of the best experiences of my life because I realized the the political views I have sitting in my living room that are what's best for my family and that I'll say at the TV or whatever, that doesn't matter anymore. What matters is what's best for the 40,000 people in my district, whether they voted for me or not. Mm-hmm. And as a 29-year-old young man, that's well, I was 29 when I was elected, it was a very good come-to-Jesus moment where it was like, this is not about you. This is about the people you represent making your community a better place and properly representing them, not representing a political party or what you personally want. And it really forced me to listen to people that have opposing views that I don't agree with. And I realize that more people need to do this nowadays. I disagree with that person, but that's all right. I see where they're coming from. I may not agree with them, but I see where they're coming from. Understand their perspective. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Where it's like, I see why we disagree, mm-hmm. but I see where you're coming from. On on that, I, you know, kind of roll, roll into it, but give you a chance to maybe talk about a little bit too. You talk about uh, having differing views um, and, and you kind of got some national notoriety for having at the time, some differing views with your own party. Um, when it came to Minnesota tried passing a marriage amendment um, and you took the, the microphone on the house floor and made a speech uh, that got picked up nationally and put around about uh, a soldier that, you know, was uh, gay and was killed in service. And you want to kind of highlight, you can probably speak to that better yeah. than I could. So, so when I was uh, sitting in the endorsement um, panel yeah. with the Star Tribune editorial board, Um, they asked me a handful of questions and I was myself, I was open and honest on whatever views. And then they said, uh, what is your stance on gay marriage? Because we think that that's something that's going to be brought up this session. And I was like, I don't think it is. We've got a $5.7 billion budget deficit. (laughs) Naive me. Um, (laughs) I was like, listen, I don't think that that's government's job mm-hmm. to tell who you can marry whatever that yeah. <laughs> stay out of if you're a conservative person you don't want government in your bedroom that's right. not the right so that was my whole take on it or whatever well silly me a while a little bit later it came up on the house floor to to put a uh, constitutional amendment in the state constitution defining marriages between a man and a woman it was pushed by some large republican donors um and I, like I said, I don't represent them. I right. represent the people in my district. Yep. And so I was like, I came out right away and said, I'm a no on this. And because so, I'm not going to, I don't want you to waste your time trying to t- change my opinion. I don't want these people, because there were sitting congressmen, congresswomen calling people and threatening to set up endorsement uh, challenges <laughs> yeah. and stuff against them. I'm like, listen, yeah. I don't care. Nobody wanted this before yeah. they even asked me to run. You're going to take my arms, yeah. too? Like, and, and so I, I put that out there, and I didn't realize what a big deal that was. I just was being me. Yeah, Kessler, all the local people are like, 
we need to chat, chat with you. We need to do this. We need, and then on the House floor, I didn't write a speech. I didn't do anything. I spoke from the heart. I, I had a time. I knew a little bit what I was going to say. I talked to the family of Corporal Andrew Wilford. He had been killed in Afghanistan. Uh, he was homosexual. And I had said, would it be okay if I tell his story on the House floor? And I did. And I basically said, listen, so the people in here are telling me, are telling the people of Minnesota that this young man was good enough to give his life in defense of our country, but not good enough to marry the person that they love. And it was such a, a sad moment. I mean, I almost cried because I hear all these people and you see the people it affects out in the house chamber, yeah. chamber outside the, where it's like, they just want to be left alone. They've been mm -hmm. fighting for years just to be left alone. And, and a group of people from my own party are picking on them. People in my own party stopped talking to me, which I, I have enough friends. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. bad. Who would you have yeah. dinner with then? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, God. I'll just have to have dinner with two or three other people that I had dinner with anyway. Right. Um, and so then that that uh, the floor speech got picked up by like Rachel Maddow and some national ones where yeah. I never figured I'd be on a Rachel Maddow show. Right. And it was playing in the retiring room of the House floor. And I remember the Republican comms gal, I forget her name, not a pleasant person. And she was not a fan of mine, especially after that. And she yelled. And it's the only time I've pulled this pulled rank on anyone like that. We were standing in there watching and it was on the TV in there and everyone's huddled. Not everyone, everyone, because there was a floor debate going on about something that didn't matter. And we we're sitting there and we're watching it. And everyone's like, just she wanted to get by and there was room to get by. She's like, excuse me. And I said, it's excuse me, Representative Creasel. Because she was being an a-hole yeah. about it. So I was like, listen here, yeah. lady. Yeah. Um, and after that, I really saw, I learned a lot about people. I, I There was a lot of people that I was friends with on the floor that I respected their opinions. And they told me they had the same view as me, but they were afraid to vote the right way. And sure. after that, I was like, well, I, I don't respect you then. Mm. I just don't. Mm -hmm. How can you do? And when people are like, how'd you do it? It's the right thing to do. Yeah. That's that's how I did it. I wasn't scared. I wasn't nervous because it's the right thing to do. I want to be able to sleep at night. Right. Is that part of the? Because you just did the one term, right? That's it. And then I didn't run for reelection. Yeah. And it had nothing to do with that. It had the fact that to be a good representative, you have to live at the Capitol. And when you live at the Capitol... You can't live there, anywhere else. Well, well, right. And then with marriage, it yeah. opens the door for... Right. people to borrow yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i mean that was part of it and the sure. step kids also wanted me to coach their football teams it was not i wanted to go in there make a difference and leave yeah it, it wasn't a career you're looking no. to have yeah. i'm glad i did it no absolutely yeah for yeah. sure and you did good while you were there i mean look what you did while you were there you know what i mean someone gave me this last night they slipped me a card at a speaking event and it says uh, they want me to run for governor. It says we need someone with balls, not legs. It's <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. So that's a good. That's a good lead. And what is next for John Creasel? Well, right now I um, apparently running for governor. Yeah. <laughs> I just dropped here. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would never say never that I would get involved in politics. If I did, I don't, mm. I don't think it would be state rep. It would be a higher office. Sure. Um, Especially, I'm not a fan of what's going on right now. But also, I've never been happier in my entire life. I have an awesome, loving, supportive wife. 
Uh, I have an amazing little four-year-old daughter. I have a job that I can help impact veterans and the lives of veterans, survivors, and dependents every day. I get paid to do that. And then additionally, I get to travel the country and share my story with people that need to hear it. And so if if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I wouldn't right. want to mess with it. So many people like are always searching for happiness, searching. I found happiness. And your daughter's so, about to get so busy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with sports and everything else, you know, that yeah. Get her, get her in a dance, boy. You'll love you know? that. Oh, my That's awesome. God. I'll tell you what. Well, he's I'd got, rather go back to Iraq. He's, yeah. got a, he, <laughs> he's got an out for not doing the daddy daughter dance, too. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I will be out yeah. there dancing. It will just be a slower dance. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Uh, no no two step in uh, here. Thank you, So you, you have those, those things going on, but if somebody uh, did want to hear you speak, how would yeah. they go about figuring that out? They could go to johncreasel.com. That's johncreasel.com. They could uh, put in a request uh, for a speaking engagement. Again, I travel the, the whole U.S. Uh, we're booking well into 2024 now, so um, you get to chat with my lovely wife and get it all planned. But, yeah, that is the that is the best way to reach me. I'm on Twitter, at John Creasel, Instagram, at John Creasel, Facebook, not really. Um, yeah, life is good, man. That's great. Life is good. So before we wrap up, we always got to ask a couple questions on the way out because we, uh, we're curious. Uh, number one, if you could go back in time and you could tell young John anything, write him a letter, what would you say? What would you tell yourself? Don't get married the first time. That's <laughs> what I, it, it sounds. It sounds right. But at that age, right. when I was getting ready to deploy, it's just not. That's really the only thing. But I will say. I'm not wired to go back and change anything. I'd never look back yeah. and have regrets because also if it wasn't for me getting married back then, hitting the bomb, ending up the situation, then getting divorced when I did, I wouldn't have, the stars wouldn't have lined up to meet the love of my life that I have now. And then my little Chloe wouldn't have been born. So I, I don't know. Okay. I mean, so to make it light, I think I would have, I would ask my dad to have, created me in a different state so I could have a football team that's won a Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. All right, last question uh, on the lighter side. Favorite barbecue food? Oh, favorite barbecue food is ribs. There we go. Yep. I just oh, bought nice. a Yoder recently, nice. and I'm loving that thing. I'm smoking two turkeys for Thanksgiving. Excellent. Um, what time should I be there? Yeah, <laughs> any, you're welcome anytime, my what man. Time at, least I know, at least I know I can get in the house, right? Correct, yeah. yeah. No steps at that one. <laughs> Well, listen, uh, John Creasel, we can't thank you enough for the time. I know you're uh, you're busier than the three of us put together, probably, but uh, we really appreciate it and appreciate your your, your service, not only military but uh, continued service to your community and the state and your family and friends. And it's uh, it's awesome to chat with you. Yeah, John, thanks, thanks for thanks, coming. Man. Thank you, guys. Questions, comments, concerns, or if you'd like to suggest a guest for the Strength from Service podcast, please email us strengthfromservice at gmail This is the Strength From Service Podcast.